All right, Ephesians chapter 2. That's enough introductory comments. As you go to Ephesians chapter 2, there are three words, three significant words in the Word of God that if you took them out of the Word of God, if you removed those words from the text of Scripture, just about everything that we believe would fall apart. There would be no home in heaven. There could be no salvation. There could be no eternal life. There could be no heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. No one would be given the power to become the sons of God. There would be nothing like that in our future. There'd be no hope for today. There would be nothing at all. The whole text of Scripture, basically, since the whole text is about Him, the whole text of Scripture falls apart if you take three words out of it, believe it or not. The first word is the most obvious word in the word of God. It is the word love. The Bible tells us, but God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Without his love, there is no crucifixion. There is no death on the cross. There is no sanctification. There is no sacrificial death. There is no eternal life. There are no sons of God. Everything goes away if God doesn't love us. Now, here's the bad news. You and I can never fully comprehend the love of God. We can never grasp it. We can never wrap our finite minds around it. But when it comes to the emotion of love, we understand that. Every person sitting in this room, if you're sitting next to your spouse, you would say, yes, I love my spouse. I love my husband. I love my wife. I love my children. Uh, Some of you are a little bit older now, and you're saying, boy, I sure do love my grandchildren. You love your aunts and your uncles and your brothers and your sisters. I tell people all the time, I love my dad. I love my two brothers. I love my sister. I love my wife. I love my daughter, and I kind of like my father-in-law. That's the way it is. You know the difference between your father-in-law and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. (laughs) Remember one time my father-in-law looked at me. I'd gone on a diet. I'd lost 35 pounds. And this is exactly what he said to me. He said, you know, Richard, I didn't know how fat you were until you lost some weight. (laughs) Now, in his mind, that was a compliment. That's not the way I took it, however. But the truth of the matter is, we understand the concept of love. But we can't understand God's love. But without love, there is no salvation. There is no home in heaven. There's another word that if you take it out, if you remove it, there's no plan of salvation. It is the word faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. This passage is going to tell us that it's by faith that we're saved, through, by grace through faith that we're saved. Without faith, there is no home in heaven. Now, our problem is we cannot fully comprehend what faith is or what faith does. We can explain it, but we can't comprehend it. It's impossible to understand how Jesus said, because of your unbelief. For I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it should, uh, it, should move, uh, it should move, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Or he said in Luke chapter 17, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say to this sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the roots, be thou planted in the midst of the sea, and it should obey you, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. We don't understand how a mustard seed, a microcosm of faith, can move mountains and pluck up sycamore trees. But we can understand faith. You came in this morning, not one person, as I watched, not one person got down on their knees, looked under the pew, and made sure that that pew was structurally sound to not only hold you up, but everybody else that's going to sit on that pew. 
You just had faith that the manufacturer of that pew made a pew so strong and so sturdy that it's going to last and it's going to hold you up. You got in your car this morning to drive to church. Some of you might have said, dear Lord, keep me safe on 58 Highway or whatever way you drove. But if you drove on 58 Highway, I'm certain prayer was a part of the journey. You got in your car and you sat down and you might have asked the Lord to bless the service to keep you safe. But probably no one in this room said, dear Lord, please let this thing start one more time. It's an amazing thing that we expect our vehicles to start every time we get in them. You can have a truck with 950,000 miles on it and you turn the key and it doesn't start. You're shocked. But the truth of the matter is most of us just had faith that the manufacturer made an engine that was going to start every single time that you put the key in. And if you drive a Ford, you've got more faith than anybody else on the planet. We can't understand the love of God, but we can understand the concept of love. We can't understand how faith moves mountains and plucks up trees, but we can understand the concept of faith. But the third word, that if you take it out, everything falls apart, is this word grace. Now, we can look up grace if we want to. We can try to understand it. But even sometimes when we think we understand it, we exhibit the fact that we don't. We can read it 166 times in the New Testament, but we don't understand it. You can read up the, read the de- uh, uh, definition in Webster's Dictionary. It's the unmerited love or unmerited favor of God, but we don't understand it. We like to sing about it, don't we? It is certainly one of our favorite topics about which to sing. As a matter of fact, some would say that the Baptist National Anthem is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see through many dangers, toils and snares. I've already come to his grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. We love to sing, wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? But we don't understand it. We sing grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin, but we don't understand it. See, it's actually impossible for us to understand how a perfect and holy and just God who hates sin can look down from heaven and look at wretched, sin-sick souls, wash them in the blood of the Lamb, make them heirs of God and join heirs with Christ Jesus, make them the sons of God, promise them a home in heaven, promise to walk with them every step of the way, to indwell us by His Holy Spirit, and someday come back and get us to be in heaven with Him forever and ever, all through the vehicle of His amazing and miraculous grace. There are two problems with grace this morning. One, if you're sitting here tonight, this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, we're going to describe to you exactly where you are outside of the grace of God. And it is not a pretty picture this morning. But there's a problem with Christians when it comes to the grace of God. There's a problem with Christians in good, solid, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. Most Christians nowadays, they wake up on Sunday morning, they put on, as we used to say, their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. And you put on your Sunday morning suit and your tie or your uh, best attire that you're going to wear to church and you grab your Sunday school curriculum or you grab your choir book or you grab your sermon notes or you get ready to be an usher or you put that pin in your lapel or whatever you do and you look at yourself in the mirror and you say to yourself, boy, God sure did get lucky when he saved me. If most of us were to sing the song truthfully, and by the way, we sing a lot of songs that we don't sing truthfully. How many of us sing, I surrender all and haven't? How many of us sing about sweet hour of prayer and don't even know what that is? 
But if we were to sing this song truthfully, looking at ourselves as good Christians, we would sing understandable grace. How sweet the sound that saved the Sunday school teacher like me. Comprehendable grace. How sweet the sound that saved a deacon like me. Explainable grace. How sweet the sound that saved an evangelist like me. See, the truth of the matter, we look around and we don't see grace as having ever saved a wretch. He saved the good Christian in a pew on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. The truth of the matter is, if we get nothing else, please understand this. God doesn't save old country preachers. He doesn't save evangelists. He doesn't save Sunday school teachers. He doesn't save choir directors. He doesn't save choir members. He doesn't save pastors. He doesn't save missionaries. God always has and always will save one classification of people and one classification of people only. God only saves dirty, wretched, wicked, vile, hell-deserving sinners. And it would not take one more ounce of the almighty grace of God to save the wretched, sin-sick soul of the worst person on Skid Row than it took to save me and you. Grace is no longer amazing. We need a good old-fashioned revival of God's people saying that grace is truly amazing. Standing up with the apostle Paul and proclaiming to the top of our lungs, Oh, wretched man that I am. See, amazing grace may very well be our Baptist national anthem, but it's not our lifestyle. It may be our theme song, but it's not our testimony. We've explained grace away by looking at it through the eyes of someone who's already experienced it and forgot that he just saved a whole room full of wretches. Let's look at what the Bible says about this topic of grace this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. As Paul is writing, of course, in the past tense to people that are already saved, describing that what they were before they got saved. Notice what he says. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in times past you walked according to this world, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we are had a conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in, his, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I just want to preach to you a message this morning about the grace of of God. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together in your house. Father, I pray for those here that do not know your Son as their personal Savior, those for whom the first three verses of this chapter are still in present tense. Father, I pray that you'll help them to understand the truth of the Scriptures this morning and come to know your Son as their personal Savior. Father, may lost people see their need of, a sal- of salvation and may saved people see the need of a closer walk with you. Father, have your will and your way in our hearts. Accomplish what no one else can accomplish. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. I want you to notice the first thing we see is the redemption of grace. It is certainly true that grace, according to the word of God, accomplishes a great many things. But we would not, I don't think anyone would disagree that the greatest accomplishment of the grace of God is the salvation of lost sinners. Understand this as we look at the redemption of grace. I want you to see first the life of the sinner. The first three verses are describing to the church of Ephesus what they were before the grace of God. Or if you're here today and you do not know Christ as your person, Savior, it's what you are right now. Now I promise it will get a little bit uncomfortable, but you can't argue with the Word of God. In verse 1 it says that before they were quickened, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. I want you to notice if you're sitting here this morning without Christ as your Savior, that you are a corpse. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Brother Harper, wait a minute. No, I'm not. I can see and hear and feel and taste and all that kind of thing. I'm a living human being. My heart is beating. My lungs are working. I'm alive. You know what? I would agree with you and so would everyone else in this congregation. But our opinion is not the least bit important when it comes to your eternal life. God Almighty says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin so that death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 begins with the wages of sin is death. As you sit here this morning, you're dead in the eyes of Almighty God. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, I didn't come to church this morning to be insulted. I'm not insulting you. I'm just telling you where you are. But if you didn't like that, you're certainly going to not like what Paul says next. He says that you used to, before you were quickened, walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. Do you know what that means? That means you're a puppet and Satan is the puppeteer. As you sit here this morning, it's important to remember this, that Satan is in control of you. Jesus put it this way in John 8, 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. So Brother Harper, I don't like that at all. I know, but that's how we live, isn't it? I remember a few years ago, I was at a church right there. It was in Ohio, but it's right where West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky come together, Ashland, Huntington, that area. And it was not too far from Portsmouth, Ohio, a little suburb there. And I, I, when I walked in uh, that morning, I noticed a black pickup truck and a man pulled up right in front of the church. The, the uh, t- uh, side door and the two back doors opened of the extended cab. Out got his wife and his two children. They came to church. He put the truck in reverse and backed away. I realized it was a man that wasn't coming to church. I didn't judge as to why he wasn't coming to church, but he wasn't coming to church, dropping his wife and children off. I, we had Sunday school in the morning service. After the morning service, I'd gone to the back and uh, uh, given the microphone to the PA guy and was standing in the back waiting to shake hands. And I looked out as I'm standing in the vestibule and that same black truck is parked in the exact same spot where he dropped those three off earlier. I walked outside to talk to him just to be friendly. And we began uh, conversing back and forth, a real nice guy. And as we talked for a few minutes, I asked him what, why he, if he had to work. And he said, no, I just don't go to church. And so I took the opportunity and started giving him the plan of salvation. Brother Parker, it was interesting because he was with me every step of the way, nodding and agreeing with me, even helping me finish the verses as I told him of the wages of sin is death. As I told him, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's right there with me. And so I'm... 
asking him, you believe that Jesus died for you? You believe you're a sinner? You believe you can be saved? And he's yes and yes and yes all the way through. And I'm sitting there thinking, what a wonderful service this is going to be. That wife and those two children are going to walk out with a saved husband and a saved daddy here in just a few moments. This guy, I mean, he's right there. I said, well, uh, buddy, would you like to go ahead and get saved right now? And this is what he said, Brother Godfrey. He said, oh, no, just like that. And I couldn't believe it. I said, why? Just like that. And he said, well, I know if I get saved, I've got to start doing all the things that this church tells me I'm supposed to do. And I'll have to come to church every Sunday. He said, my weekend's my only time off. And I used my weekends to go hunting and fishing. I dropped my wife off and I went fishing the entire time they were at church today. And he said, nobody is going to tell me I can't go hunting and fishing on Sunday. And then he said this, I'm my own man. No, you're not. You're of your father, the devil. You walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. You do what he says. The truth of the matter is, as you sit here this morning, if you don't know Christ as your personal savior, you're Satan's puppet, whether you like it or not. And you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Brother Harper, I really don't like that. No, I understand, but it's still true. If you don't like those two, you're definitely not going to like the third one. You know, the third verse tells us that there's someone angry with us. Someone mad at you, if you will, if you're outside of the grace of God. It behooves us to make peace with people who are angry with us, doesn't it? I remember years ago, I had a boss. I worked at a company called Color Tile. Actually, on, uh, on Brainerd Road for a long time, I worked over there. And I had a boss here in Chattanooga named Ray Parrish. Ray Parrish was from Michigan. His wife, Lil, was about five foot one. And uh, Ray Parrish was blue-green and red-yellow colorblind. As I understand it, not being colorblind, there's two types, two major types. There's blue-green colorblindness and there's red-green colorblindness. It is amazing to me that the blue-green colorblindness actually claims Jack Nicholas, the golfer. Can you imagine? He doesn't hit the ball to the green. He hits the ball to the whatever that is. I thought that was funnier than that. But anyway, but Ray Parrish was both. So every single night before he went to bed, his wife, Lil, would lay out his clothes for the next day. It was always easy to see when they were having a fight. She wouldn't lay his clothes out at all. He'd go to his closet in his colorblindness and try to pick out something to wear. He would walk in wearing plaids and stripes and checks and all kinds of things that would never go together in a million years. And we would all smile when he walked in. Hey, Ray, you and Lil having a fight? And he would say the same thing every time. How do you guys know every time we're fighting? It made sense with Ray Parrish to make peace with Lil before she laid out his clothes the next day. It makes sense for you to make peace with your wife uh, before she cooks your afternoon meal here in just a little while. But as you're sitting here today without Christ as your Savior, the person that's angry with you is not a wife who lays out your clothes or cooks your meal or drives you around or anything like that. You know what it is? It's the Lord. You were by nature the children of wrath. John chapter 3 says this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son, listen to this, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. As you traverse 77 and 153 and 58 and 24, you remember this, that the wrath of God goes with you every mile that you drive, every place that you go, every time you go to work, every time, everything that you do at work, the wrath of Almighty God abideth on you. I'm here to tell you, that's a scary thing, and Jesus said it was scary. He said, fear not them which after they've killed the body have no more than they can do, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. 
It's a scary thing to be abiding in the wrath of God. That's the life of the sinner. But then you meet the love of the Savior. <laughs> you get to verse 4. After that terrible description, dead in your trespasses and sins, a child of disobedience, doing what Satan tells you to do, walking according to the prince and the power of the air, the wrath of God abiding on you. Then verse 4, but God was rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. You know what he's saying there? He's saying God loved you when you had all those characteristics from verses 1 through 3. God loved you when you were walking according to the course of this world. While his wrath was abiding on you. So Brother Harper, how is it possible for him to love someone that his wrath abides on? Listen carefully. Just look at Calvary and you'll know. On Calvary, God poured out his wrath on his only begotten son to demonstrate his love for the entire world. Wrath and love at the very same instant. Right now, it's that love. The life of the sinner, dead in his trespasses and sins, a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, meets the love of the Savior. As I told you, it's impossible to describe his love. The very few times that people have tried to describe it, even as our Savior described it in John chapter 14 and verse 13, greater love hath no, 15 and verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid on his life for his friend. Romans chapter 5 and verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. We celebrate people as heroes who give their lives for others, do we not? The first responders that run into buildings and put themselves in harm's way, we celebrate them. In, in South Charleston, West Virginia, a suburb of Charleston, it's its own town, but and there's a hospital there, Thomas Memorial Hospital. My dad, every time he would go to the hospital, would go to Thomas Memorial Hospital. What, one of the great miracles of my dad's life is that he lived after going to Thomas Memorial Hospital. It doesn't have the best track records of hospitals. And every time you would walk into Thomas Memorial Hospital, by the way, my dad had four heart attacks. After each heart attack, he drove himself to the hospital. The first heart attack he had, he was there in South Charleston. He was at an intersection where there's a, a Bob Evans over here and a Wendy's over here. He's sitting at the light, and he had a fender bender. He, I think he was actually at fault. And he knew that his, uh, his right arm began to tingle, and his chest got real tight. He knew something was wrong. He also knew, after all of this uh, accident stuff was done, insurance cards were exchanged, that if he went to the hospital, they wouldn't let him eat. So he went through the drive through at Wendy's and ordered a single cheese with everything. He walked into the hospital, into the emergency room eating a single cheese from Wendy's and said, you know, I think I just had a heart attack. They didn't take him seriously. Once they did an EKG, they took him seriously. He had four heart attacks, drove himself to the hospital, went to visit him dozens of times when he was in Thomas. And as you walk in Thomas, uh, on the way in, there's, there's like a breezeway. You walk through the front door, then there's the main entry to the, hall, uh, to the hospital. And on the right, until they did the remodeling, there was a picture hanging right here of a Marine Corps uh, World War II Sergeant Thomas, the name tag and everything. It was a painted portrait. I didn't understand why his picture was there. I just figured it had something to do with the family, Thomas Hospital, Sergeant Thomas. And every time you would go in or out, the picture was so, uh, so, so inspiring that it caught your attention and you never noticed anything else. But one day I was distracted, didn't notice the picture, and looked on the opposite wall facing the picture. There were three frames there. Two of them had letters in them, but it's the middle frame that caught my attention. As I stopped and stared, on the left-hand side of that middle frame, there hangs, and still to this day, hangs Sergeant Thomas's Purple Heart. Purple Heart's given when a military person is injured in battle. On the far right-hand side was Sergeant Thomas's Bronze Star. 
over the course of my life, at that time, had seen people with purple hearts and bronze stars, but I'd never seen what was in the middle at that time. There hangs his Congressional Medal of Honor. Immediately, I read the two letters. One was from President Harry S. Truman telling the parents that their son had died in battle. The other was the actual transcript from the congressional uh, vote that gave him, bestowed upon him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Sergeant Thomas was leading a platoon of Marines in World War II on an island in the South Pacific. They'd been ordered to take a hill that is, was extremely fortified by the Japanese. There were two levels of machine gun turrets that they had overcome, but the third one on top of the hill was very, very well defended. So they got him down in a foxhole. They decided they would weaken the Japanese position by launching hand grenades at them. He pulled the pin in his hand grenade and launched it in the air. And when he did, it got caught in the branches of a palm tree and fell down live into the foxhole with Sergeant Thomas and his Marines. He didn't think. He didn't calculate the cost. He just threw his body down on top of the hand grenade. Of course, when it exploded, it instantly killed Sergeant Thomas. But because of his act of heroism, those devil dogs climbed out of that foxhole, marched straight up that hill in the Japanese machine gun fire, and took the hill, and the United States Marine Corps never surrendered at the rest of World War II. Because of his act of heroism, the United States Congress bestowed posthumously on him the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest honor a military person can be awarded. Scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die, as we mentioned in Sunday school, he didn't die for his friends, his fellow soldiers. He died for the atheist that shakes his fist toward heaven and doubts his very existence. There's no love that can be, that love cannot be defined. The closest you can come to is one in a song, and of course, better in the scripture, the old song that said, could we with ink the ocean fill? And where are the skies of parchment made? Where every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. But Paul said it better, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm here to tell you, lost person, this morning, there is absolutely no reason to walk out that door or these doors abiding in the wrath of God when just by simply trusting him you can abide in the love of God the Christian will face his chastisement his scourging even his judgment but we will never experience his wrath wrath can be replaced by grace and nothing can stop it from happening no creature in hell can stop it. No, no well, wicked teacher can stop it. If you choose to trust Christ as your personal Savior, nothing can stop you from doing that. Notice, please, the life of the sinner meets the love of the Savior. It results in living salvation. Even when we're dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. You know, everything changed when you got saved. I know what you're thinking. I, I, I know. You're thinking, well, Brother Harper, I still have an old nature. I still sin more than I want to. I, I, that's true of all of us. But do you realize your past, your present, your future all changed the instant you got saved? Your past was once riddled with sin. But the moment you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, this verse became a reality. Come now. 
Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. It became a reality of Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Isaiah 38 and verse 17 became a reality. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love for my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sin behind thy back. (laughs) Your present changed. You were of your father the devil now, but as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God. John chapter 1 and verse 12. Or 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The life of the sinner meets the love of the Savior and results in living salvation. It changed your past and your present, and of course it changed your future. Not just the redemption of grace and if you don't know Christ as your personal savior you don't know the grace of God that brings salvation today is the day the Bible is clear about that is it not it says behold today is the day of salvation and then it gets more specific when it says now is the acceptable time notice number two though there's the repositioning of grace hath raised us up together made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus I am not in any way a Greek scholar But I know that this is all in aorist tense. In other words, it's happened already to these people. Paul is writing to living people as a living human being, and he's saying, we're already in heaven. Brother Arbor, what's that mean? That means it's as sure that you're going to be in heaven if you've trusted Christ as your Savior as if you were already there. We've been repositioned, haven't we? (laughs) You know why we have so many problems, Christian? We have way too much involvement in this world. If you think about it, when the disciples came back and they cast out a demon, they were so excited, and Jesus says, marvel not that the demons are subject to you, but marvel that your names are written in heaven. Peter tells us that our citizenship is in in heaven. We're told that we have an inheritance in heaven that's incorruptible and fadeth not away. We're told to lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, nor thieves do break through and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, nor thieves do break through and steal. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, For our conversation is in heaven. So if our conversation, our citizenship, and our treasure, and our inheritance, and our names are in heaven, what are we supposed to have here? The old song that's often mocked and ridiculed, but the words are still so appropriate for the message, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Never forget hearing the story of a man by the name of Iris Stamphill, who was a preacher. The way I heard the story, it actually takes place in West Virginia. He was going visiting, and he had a man with him that had just suffered some huge losses in his business, and he was very near suicidal, and Brother Stamphill was trying to encourage him. He went to make a visit, and Brother Stamphill got out of the car and went, got out of the vehicle and went, went to make a visit and on one side of the road. And the businessman sitting in the passenger seat looked on the other side of the road and saw a young lady, a, a little girl, bouncing a rubber ball up against the side of the house and catching it and bouncing it and catching it. She was smiling and grinning from ear to ear. And as he sat there, he was fondly reminded of his childhood. Then he started to notice some things. He noticed he could look through the broken windows And see, there were buckets there to catch the water from the holes in the roof. Notice the porch looked like it was about to fall in. Notice there were literal holes in the side of the house that you could see in the house from. He finally got out of his car, walked up to find out the secret of this little lady's joy (laughs) because he'd just lost so much money, but even with all of his losses, he still had more than she had. 
As far as he could tell, there was no reason for her to be happy at all. He walked up and stood beside her for a few moments. And after a while, she stopped and looked at him. And she said, can I help you, mister? And he said, I just want to know why you're so happy. He said, it looks like your porch needs to be condemned. Your house has fallen apart. There's holes in the windows, holes in the roof, holes in the walls. No one should have to live in a house like this. She looked at him and smiled even bigger. And she said, mister, you don't understand. And reached out and grabbed him by the hand and walked out in the backyard of the house. He, she said, mister, do you see that hilltop over yonder? And he said, yes. She said, not too long ago, my daddy left me and my mama to go on the other side of that hilltop where he's building us a brand new house. She said, mister, I'm not worried because any day now my daddy's coming back and he's going to move me and my mama to that brand new house he's been building for us just yonder on the other side of that hilltop. The businessman went back to his car convicted. As he was sitting there weeping, Irish Stamphill came back and he told him the story and Irish Stamphill wrote these words, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below. A little silver and a little gold, but in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. Don't think me poor, deserted, or lonely. I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of a city. I have a mansion, a home, and a crown. I've got a mansion just over that hilltop. We have been repositioned, Christian. I know it's tempting to look around and say, boy, this world's getting crazy. That's just fine. It's not home. I'm going home. When this is all over, I've already been seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's not a hope so. It's not a maybe so. I don't have my fingers crossed. I'm not trying to hold on. It has already happened. The grace, the redemption of His grace, the repositioning of His grace. Number three, quickly. Before we get to number three, let me just remind you that grace is pretty wonderful, isn't it? Everything you have, you have by the grace of God. If you have your health, you have it by the grace of God. If you don't have your health, then you have grace to help in time of need. You have your family, you have by the grace of God. Every vehicle you own, the house that you live in, you have it all by the grace of, of, of God. So let me ask you a question in pure, bad North Carolina grammar. Ain't grace good? But to continue on in that vein, when it comes to grace, you ain't seen nothing yet. Amen. Notice what the next verse says. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. You know what? I'm not even experiencing the riches of his grace. And it's already amazing. What are the riches going to be like when we stop having the table scraps of grace and experience the rich? Brother Harper, why? let's talk about walls of jasper and gates of pearl and a street of gold. No, those mysteries have already been revealed. That's not what he's talking about here. You know why he can't give us the riches of his grace? Let me give you this. As a, as a preacher, there are only three types of people in the congregation. Now, I know we put people in classifications and categories and camps and all that kind of stuff. But there are only three, when you're preaching, types of people that are listening to the preaching. Number one, there is the, there is the shouter. Now, that's the person that every now and then says amen. Preachers love the shouters. We love to hear someone say amen. My father-in-law says saying amen to the preachers like saying sick them to a bulldog, all right? We like that. That's a, that's a good thing. And by the way, preachers remember other people, other churches who the shouters are. Uh, you, you, you'll be traveling on the road. Well, I was just in such and such a church. Was that guy that still sits on the third row, is he still saying amen? Oh, yeah, he's still there. <laughs> there's the shouter. There's number two. There's the nodder. Now, the nodder has two different categories. I'm not talking about this nodder right here. 
not that nodder, all right? But, but there's a nodder, and there are several of you this morning, and you know who you are, that as the preacher's preaching and you really agree with something, you don't say amen, you just do this. You start nodding your head. Can I just give you a little help here? If you're a nodder, you're really a shouter, you just haven't tried it yet. You try it the first time, you'll like it, and you'll never go back to nodding. Now, unfortunately, there's a third group, and unfortunately, even more than that, I'm in this group. It's the crier. And there are some of you here this morning as well. When something really starts blessing you, your eyes start watering, you get all choked up. I'd like to be a shouter. Unfortunately, when I get really blessed, if I tried to shout, it would sound like this. Amen. And I just don't want to do that. That's embarrassing. But I'm a crier. In our, in our old home church when we were in West Virginia, we had a man there by the name of George Kirk. And Brother Nutt, George Kirk was a shouter. And people remembered George Kirk in that church, right? If, he, if there was an Olympic gold medal for shouting, George could win it, all right? And I'm a crier. We had an evangelist came in, come in and he, he preached on the millennial reign. Didn't he preach on heaven? Preached on the millennial reign of Christ. And as they say in North Carolina, it got good. And as he started preaching, George started shouting. He preached a little bit more, I started crying. He preached a little bit more. George shouted some more. He preached some more, and I cried some more. It got to the point that George was shouting because I was crying, and I was crying because George was shouting. <laughs> after we got finished, George, who's in heaven now, was about 65. He ran up to me after the service. He said, Brother Richard, he said, if this doesn't prove we're going to get a new body when we get to heaven, I don't know what does. I said, what do you mean by that, Brother George? He said, because if it got any better than this, I couldn't take it. We're not ready for the riches of his grace, but our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Then we're ready for the riches of his grace. Number four, quickly, we saw the redemption of grace, the repositioning of grace, the riches of his grace. Number four, quickly, the requirements of grace. Surely something as wonderful as this grace that we're describing would cost a fortune. Certainly only the people with the most money in their bank account the most powerful politicians, the most influential captains of industry could buy the grace of God. No. The Bible makes sure we understand it's exactly the opposite. That's human thinking, that grace would cost a lot. Grace did cost a lot, but not to us. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Don't you love that? Did you realize this? That no religion on the planet that teaches works take you to heaven will ever give you an exact number of works. They know if they set the number at 2,000, you would do 2,000 and you would be gone. You'd never show up again. You'd never put another dime in the offering plate. There is only one belief system in the world that tells you the exact number of good deeds that are necessary for you to go to heaven. And that's Bible-believing Christianity. Because here's the real number. Zero. It doesn't take one good work to go to heaven. Thief on the cross did no good works whatsoever. And yet, where is he now? The truth of the matter is you sit here, it's not of works. It's a gift. Now, why is it in every other area of our lives we understand what a gift is until it comes to salvation? You ever notice that? Someone hands you something and they say, this is a gift. As, as an evangelist, someone will hand me something and you even do this, don't you? We, we get all hypocritical. Oh, you didn't have to do that. <laughs> I'm not handing it back. It was a gift. I know you want me to have it or you wouldn't have handed it to me. But I will tell you that you didn't have to do that. Your kids come down the stairs on Christmas you don't say go plow the back 40 and then we'll open some presents. That's not what a gift is. 
Satan works on wages. God works in gifts. When your children come into your room on Mother's Day with that burnt toast and those runny eggs and that macaroni necklace, every mom in the room knows exactly what to do with it. You eat the eggs, you eat the toast, and you wear the necklace all day long. Why? Because it was a gift. But when it comes to salvation and God says, here's a gift, it's free. My son paid for it for you on an old rugged cross with his shed blood. Here, you can have this. We go, whoa, I better get busy. That's not how it works. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Titus 3 and verse 5. The Bible tells us this is not the Ten Commandments going to take you to heaven. Romans 3 and verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. No, you can't earn it. You can't get there. Everything we do is wrong. How do you get this wonderful gift of the grace of God? This is so simple. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you realize that God meant that so much? He didn't just say it once. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Brother Harper, that is way too easy. Hold on. If you're a perfect, sinless, holy God who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, wouldn't you make salvation so easy? that a four-year-old can understand it. Humanity makes it hard. God makes it easy. It's just by simple faith, believing, and accepting Him as salvation. For salvation, it's just that simple. It's not of works. It's by faith. It's by grace through faith. All the work has been done. That's the requirements of grace. Nothing can stop you from leaving here in the grace of God today. Lastly, we'll be finished. There's the results of grace. Oh, here it is. I knew you were getting here. Oh, yeah, you talk about salvation being free, and then you turn around and tell us what we have to do to get it. Nope, you don't have to do anything to get it. You could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for 40 years and not be able to make enough money to buy one drop of grace, but God gave it to you. But then after we're saved, what does it say? For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, we could spend a great deal of time that we don't have listing through the Word of God the things that the Bible describes specifically as good works. But let's talk for just a moment about the one that's the nearest and dearest to his heart. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10 tells us, telling others about him. You know, there's a lot of Christians that have never actually told someone about Christ. And the reason some of them, not all of them, are just disrespectful and rebellious and disobedient. There's a great many of them that are afraid, that are nervous. Hear what you're nervous about. Now think about this for just a second. I'm not belittling anybody. You're nervous that you're going to get the Romans road mixed up. You're going to get the verses out of order. As if a lost person hearing a verse out of order would be a bad thing for that lost person. Of course it's not. But I understand the fear. You might say something wrong. You might say something that offends them. They might not like it anymore. They might not let the next person talk to them because you made a a mess of things and you got all the verses out of order. Do you know when the Apostle Paul witnessed to someone one-on-one, do you know what he didn't use ever one time? The Romans road. Do you know what he used? He said, I was on the road to Damascus and a bright light shone. 
But he always used his own personal testimony. Sometimes he started with Stephen. When the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also stood by and was consenting unto his death. And then continues on giving the, the whole story of that Damascus Road experience. He used his own personal testimony. You know, there are two things about your own personal testimony if you ever tell it to a lost person. One, you can't mess it up. Number two, if you do, no one would ever know. But you know, there are people all over Chattanooga and Harrison. There are people all over this region of the country that need to hear that you used to be a wretched sinner until you were saved. Oh, you're still a wretched man. You still don't do what you're supposed to do. There are people in this, in this vicinity that need to hear that you used to be addicted to drugs or you used to have an alcohol problem or you used to be the wrong kind of husband. They need to hear your personal testimony. You know why we don't give our own personal testimony anymore? Because it's not amazing that God would save a good Christian like me, is it? The Apostle Paul History tells us he started 168 churches. That's not a Bible number. That's a history number. He is the human penman of at least 13 books of your New Testament. Maybe 14 if you believe he's the one that God used to pen the words of the book of Hebrews. Turned the world upside down for God. The greatest apostle. Perhaps the greatest Christian that ever lived. But if he came in here and sat down and we said, Paul, what was the whole purpose of your ministry? He would not say to plant churches. He would not say to write scripture. He would not say to turn the world upside down. You know what he would say? You know how I know what he would say? Because he said it. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy. Listen to this. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Do you know why Paul turned the world upside down? He never got over amazing grace. He never forgot he was a wretch. As a Christian, we sit here this morning, and I will tell you this, a church that's filled with people that share their testimony to everyone they know is a church that will always be filled with people. But we've gotten over it. Oh, if I asked you this morning, do you think grace is amazing? Every Christian in this room would say yes. But if I asked you, how many of you still know that you're nothing but a wretch? Because that's what truly makes grace amazing. Not that he saved good Christians and preachers and missionaries and ushers and deacons. He saved wretches. We need a good old-fashioned revival of God's people, not just singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, because they love the song, but singing it because it's their actual lifestyle that they just can't get over grace. If you're a lost person this morning, give up his wrath today. There could be no simpler exchange in the history of the world to trade the wrath of God for the love, the grace the mercy and the compassion of God. Don't let anything stop you this morning. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed with no one looking around.